Those Space People, a podcast series of casual cosmic conversations with people working on exciting space projects. Today we have Lindsay Yi. Lindsay works with Starbridge Venture Capital, which is a VC fund that focuses on the space sector. Lindsay is currently based in the San Francisco Bay Area and welcome to the show Lindsay. Thanks for having me. This is my first podcast, so happy to be with a friend. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you'll be fantastic. So you have a background in uh, international business and economics. So how did you get into space and eventually how did you get into Starbridge? So yeah, I, I studied international business at Boston University and at the time I had no background in space whatsoever. I didn't know anything. I didn't even know what the ISS was, the acronym. <laughs> but after I graduated from Boston University, it was the financial crisis and I really didn't know what I wanted to do, so I decided that I should just move back home to Silicon Valley and see what was happening back home since I hadn't been back in four years. So I ended up just sending my resume out fairly randomly to see what stuck. And I ended up hearing back from NASA Ames Research Center as like my first job interview, which obviously everybody knows what NASA is. So I thought that was pretty cool. And the job was actually to be on the project team to bring the International Space University and Singularity University to NASA Ames Research Center the following summer. So because my background was international, uh, this really appealed to me. So I thought, oh, that's like a really cool opportunity. Sure. I'll go work at NASA Ames for a year or two and see what happens. And then I ended up becoming really good friends with a bunch of the students at ISU. And from there, they told me about like the Space Generation Advisory Council and the Space Generation Congress uh, and told me to apply for it. So I thought this would be a good opportunity to like learn more about the space industry. So I applied and then was accepted. And that year it was in Korea. So I ended up going to Korea and met even more young space professionals and got even more sucked into the space industry. And from there, my friends told me to apply for the space station design workshop in Stuttgart, Germany, which once again, I was like, I don't know anything about space, but sure. Uh, so I applied to that, got accepted, and went to Germany, met even more space professionals, young professionals, had a great time. And then from there, I decided I am pretty much 100% in the space industry now. So from there, I decided to do the International Space University. So I left NASA Ames and did 
the Space Studies program over at Kennedy Space Center. And then I followed that with the Master's in Space Studies over in Strasbourg, France. Uh, so that was <laughs> my basic background in the space industry. And then following ISU, once again, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. So I moved back home to Silicon Valley. And I knew I didn't want to go back to NASA Ames and government because it's Silicon Valley and there's just so much going on around you. And at the time, Planet Labs and Spire had gotten a lot of attention from like Silicon Valley venture capitalists and were raising huge amounts of money. And I knew the guys from Planet, from NASA Ames, and then the guys who started Spire were in the class above me at ISU. So it seemed like the new space or space startups were at that point really starting to take off, which made me decide that I wanted to join a space startup, but maybe a bit earlier so that I could really learn everything from the ground up. So I started to just look and talk to every single space startup I could find. I mean, in Silicon Valley and like overseas, just everywhere. And I kept hearing the same thing over and over again, which was, we're having a difficult time explaining to venture capitalists why space technology is so important and kind of bridging that understanding between space tech and VC. So being from the business side of things, this got me more interested in trying to learn about the VC side. And despite growing up in Silicon Valley, I knew nothing about venture capital. Uh, so I ended up getting introduced to my now boss, Steven Jorgensen, who was a longtime Space Angel investor. So we met and I guess we just <laughs> really hit it off and uh, we had similar views on space tech and like where the space industry was going. And we're both like really excited about all these space startups popping up. Um, so about a year after we had met, he called me up and was like, hey, I'm starting a space venture capital fund. Do you want to join me? So at the time I had been interviewing with other more like corporate type uh, space venture funds. and But what I really wanted to was learn from the ground up because that's, I think, the best way to just learn everything. So I ended up saying yes. <laughs> and that's how I ended up at Starbridge Venture Capital. Yeah, it's uh, it's really fascinating, isn't it? How uh, all these relationships are fostered in the space industry purely based on a personal network. How personally well you know each other, right? Yeah. I mean, everything is based on network and relationships. So 
If there's one piece of advice, it's like definitely build up your network and those relationships because you never know where they'll lead you in the future and they're pretty invaluable. Yeah, yeah, that, that's very true. I completely agree, especially given that the space is such a small world. Uh, it's very, very important, personal relationships. So, um, Lindsay, can you talk a bit about your work at Starbridge? What is it that you do at Starbridge? So, prior to coronavirus, it was a lot of networking and going out to various events, like, almost every night. So... I mean, basically, I'll like wake up in the morning, read email, get caught up on the daily news, and then have some meetings. And then after that, then I would go out to some networking event, whether it's like general VC or space specific, but there's always something going on in Silicon Valley. So and like I said, your most valuable asset is your network. So it's just a lot of building up those relationships. Other than that, it's we'll generally have a team meeting every day so that we're all kind of caught up on what sort of due diligence needs to go on or just like generally what's going on in the markets and how this affects our portfolio companies and keeping up with pretty much everything going on. Like you need to know generally what is going on in um, like Silicon Valley or the tech companies because that could affect the markets, which then affects your portfolio companies and just figuring out like who's doing what, a lot of forecasting and prediction and doing some deep dives into specific technologies. I mean, no, no day is the same and you really kind of have to set your own schedule and make sure that you're yourself on top of it. So it's, it's nice that you don't have somebody like constantly breathing down your neck, micromanaging you, but I think you feel the pressure within yourself to just make sure that you're on top of everything. Wow, that, that sounds so cool. I mean, you, the kind of perspective, I can only imagine the kind of perspective that you have because uh, being an engineer, you know, you're often so myopic and just concentrated in your little bubble. Yeah, you you definitely have to get out of your bubble. I mean, at this point, like going to space events and stuff, like that's my family, that's my bubble. So especially when I was trying to learn more about the VC side of things, it was really daunting to go to these events and at the time, it was pretty much like I was the only female around and everybody's kind of looking at you like, why are you here? <laughs> like, what are, what, do you, what are you bringing to us? Like, how can we learn from you sort of thing? Yeah, the space industry def- definitely can benefit from uh, having more diversity. That's very true. Yeah. And I, I think that 
space people don't get out enough into like other industries. We're all just kind of comfortable and stuck within our own bubble, you know, because of space industry. I mean, we all know each other and we all are like a big family, but in order to grow, you need to break out of that bubble and get into a uncomfortable situations in order to grow. The fact that you mentioned that space people, to make better decisions, we need to also know about the real world, you know, outside our bubble. That brings me to this point um, that we all know that building satellites, rockets, you know, the whole upstream aspect of space is already quite crowded. Which part of the value chain do you think is the most promising? What part of the value chain do you guys focus on? What is your forecast for uh, the, the whole value chain of space? So we don't really look at it as like upstream versus downstream tech. The way we look at it is we kind of try to forecast like where we think the space industry is going in the next decade or so. What And then from there, kind of dissecting what technologies still need to be developed in order to get to that future that we see. So an example of this is our investment in Axiom Space. We invested in Axiom because we knew that the ISS would be decommissioned in the next decade or so, um, like unofficially around 2028. And then we're thinking like, the research being done on the ISS is invaluable. And it's like, if we lose that, we're going to lose a huge asset (laughs) for not only space, but just being able to do research terrestrially. I mean, seeing what happens in zero gravity there, we don't even know what kind of new technologies can be derived from that. So That's why we sort of were looking around as to who are the potential next, what what is next to the IS, next to come in lieu of the ISS. And at the time, it was basically, there was Bigelow, and then there was Axiom. And we decided on Axiom because they're team came from NASA. So Michael Soffredini, who's the CEO, co-founder, he worked in human spaceflight at NASA for over 30 years and served as NASA's ISS program manager for a decade. And then the other, the chairman, Cam Gaffarian, I worked for his contract company, SGT, at NASA Ames Research Center, and I already knew that he knows how to get those government contracts, which are invaluable at this point in time, because the like government money, you're always going to probably, you're always going to need the government contracts in order to like help build up crazy technologies like a research center in space. 
But yeah, so we just see that as invaluable and a prime customer is always needed in space because it doesn't really follow the market dynamics yet, right? Yeah, these government contracts really are invaluable for these early stage startups because it really helps with the R&D and getting non-diluted funding is extremely helpful in the beginning just to like build out your first product and have proof that it works um, then you can take that and come to the VCs and be more likely to get money <laughs> so how how do you find startups or companies that you could potentially invest in because a lot of startups or companies usually operate in stealth mode right so how do you find these people so once again it's your network so pretty much our whole team we've all been in the space industry for over a decade and it's these relationships that we've built up over the years with all these people who are now starting their own space startups who we know they've they've got a track record or they've even already had a space startup that's been successful so for us it hasn't really been too difficult to find startups to invest in. It's actually, we have more startups we would like to invest in than we have capital to actually invest. Wow. So yeah, I, I, like once again, it's, it's all about the relationship and network from day zero. <laughs> So how do you validate the claims made by these companies, be it either the business models or the technology claims made by them? For us, either, like I said, we've already had a relationship over years or even decades with these companies, or if it's a new company that we we don't know the founders and they've got some crazy claims and we always like to ask them like who's your customer or who is a potential customer and when they tell us this then we will we most likely will have a connection to that customer and then we can just directly reach out to their customer and get them on a call to see what they actually think about this technology or this company. Like, does it actually pan out? Is it actually needed? Because um, a lot of the time we come across new founders who are brilliant technically, but are don't understand that they need to have a customer or a marketplace for their tech. So yeah. it's a lot... That's a bit of a learning process on their part, but the the startup CEOs are getting much better and more educated on understanding the markets and weighing out like their competition and finding new customers outside of, you know, our general space bubble and government. Because you like I said, government is great as a 
contractor as an initial customer, but if you want to get VC money, that cannot be your sole customer. You need to look outside of the government. Otherwise, I mean, just become a government contractor. There's no problem with that either. And before you make the investment decision, what all criteria do you consider? As in you, the business models, the technology claims, the people. So what is the order of priority of these criteria? I mean, it really differs company to company, but initially it's probably like, can they actually do what they claim to do? And then it's, do they actually have a big enough customer base? We like to see that they have customers terrestrially as well. So not just in space, government or other space companies as customers, but do they actually have customers on Earth? (laughs) And then it's also just the team. Like, do we actually like them? Do they listen to us when we make suggestions? Like, how are they communicating with us? Because once you make an investment in these portfolio companies, like, you're in it till the very end, which could be a decade, and you have to put up with these people. So you want to make sure that you actually have a really good relationship trustworthy relationship with the team. So so you've mentioned these uh, 10-year periods, right? So looking ahead 10 years into the future and having these 10-year uh, periods of association with startups or companies. So does that mean your typical holding periods are around 10 years? Yeah. So for venture funds, typically a fund lasts for 10 years and you would like to see an exit sooner than that but with space timelines can get pushed out a bit but ideally no more than 10 years yeah i mean uh, definitely technology as somebody working in the upstream i can totally understand that it takes a really long time to prove heritage and and get things working on their own in space (laughs) unless it's the hubble space telescope or something (laughs) Yeah. When it comes to that, then you definitely want to go the NASA government route. (laughs) I mean, the government, ultimately, the governments have the deepest pockets. So Mm -hmm. on the other side of the VC fund, right, are uh, what you call these LPs, the investors. Yeah, the limited partners. LP stands for limited partners is uh, the word I learned when I was researching for this podcast episode. So I had no clue about this. (laughs) Yeah. So when you're talking to these LPs, right, when you're roping them in, do you face any challenges in bringing them on board? Because this is space and this is not really a free market. It's quite different from other deep tech. So what kind of challenges do you face in when talking to them? How do they assess this risk versus reward in space? Do they assess it differently for space because it's a little uncertain? Or Yeah. So this is actually the biggest challenge for us as a space venture fund is finding LPs and convincing them to give us money. So a lot of the time I hear from space startups how about how difficult it is for them to raise money from VCs. But I tell them, you have to realize that the VCs want to give you money. Um, whereas for us as a fund, we have to do our own fundraising from 
these LPs, which are way harder to find. And in the past, I mean, it's gotten better, but in the past they were like very hidden. So they were not out in the public. So it was even harder to figure out who these LPs are and get in contact with them. So for us as a new fund, when we raised our first fund, it was mostly from friends of the fund. So friends from our GPs who have gone back decades together and are all space enthusiasts and have also invested in space startups in the past. So that we raised our first fund mostly around their money and then started investing right away because all the LPs want to see metrics. So they want to see like what kind of returns you're getting on your fund before they give you more money. Uh, so this was probably the most important thing for us as a first fund was just making those initial investments and getting back those metrics that we could then pass on to more LPs. And now we've gotten to the point where we're able to talk to the more institutional type LPs, though when you're talking about space, there is definitely a learning curve. But it, it's definitely gotten better. And now we're definitely seeing way more interest from the institutional type VC or institutional type LPs where they see the value in space. But yeah, definitely <laughs> raising LP money for a space fund has is not an easy task. <laughs> and there's a lot of like hand holding and just once again building up a relationship because once you give somebody money, like you're going to be stuck with them for at least a decade. So you wanna know that you can trust these people and that you have a good solid relationship and foundation with them. I, I hear of this uh, famous saying, right? So if you want to become a millionaire investing in space, then you have to start out with being a billionaire. Yeah. <laughs> is that true? It, it is extremely helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you've got a billion lying around, why not? Look at Bezos and Musk. All major investors, they've made their money elsewhere. And then uh, I think for fun, they just get into space. Yeah. But I mean, it, it's heartening to see all these billionaires putting their money towards space because I think it's really needed to help encourage others to look at space and the importance, the important role that space plays in our daily lives. I think most of the general public doesn't realize how much of an impact space actually has on their lives. A single tweet by Elon Musk is obviously has a really huge impact and reach. 
Now that we've uh, brought up uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, right, it's inevitable, the next question. <laughs> so both of these people have um, either settlements on uh, on Mars and Moon, or they either uh, are seriously betting on space tourism. So what's your take on how this is going to pan out? For instance, do you think, I don't know, in 10 years, there's going to be uh, um, a queue of extremely wealthy people trying to have a trip around Moon or visit the ISS, or how, how do you think this whole space tourism is going to be in the next 10 years? I mean, I, I have to say, I, I hope that there will be, I hope that there will be people lined up to take uh, a flight on SpaceX to Axiom to experience um, space <laughs> for space tourism, even though for Axiom, it's, it's initially for research, but you know, you that's the that's the long term dream would be to just take off for a week and hang out in zero G. <laughs> yeah, that'll be one fun, uh, super fun vacation, definitely hanging out in zero G. Yeah, or a zero G restaurant or theme parks or I mean all these ideas right of uh, zero G microgravity Quidditch you know all the Harry Potter fans. Oh yeah, yeah, Quidditch on the moon. Quidditch would be fun. <laughs> How do you see these um, these crazy number of satellite rocket companies right? So small satellite rocket companies we have hundreds of them, and uh, also countless uh, satellite companies. So. What do you think? What's your prediction for these companies? Well, in terms of small sat launch companies, there's way too many. So that's really not our focus because to date, there's like almost 200 small launch companies. And I probably get notified of a new one or somebody's reaching out to me with a, their new small launch company. Like, almost every other day at least. So for that, there's just, it's way too crowded. For us, we, from the beginning, we just never really looked too deeply into small launch because it didn't make sense to us. Since if you look at um, Bryce Tech, they put out a graph of the overall space industry every year. They update it. And I believe on their chart, I think they, the overall space industry is around $360 billion And only about 6 or $7 billion of that is launch. So that's just a really tiny tiny section of the space industry is made up of launch. And I mean, it takes an enormous amount of capital and then even longer timelines. So as an investor, small launch just never really made sense to us. But, you know, we never say never. <laughs> space is, I guess, so unpredictable that anything can happen, even business-wise or Technology-wise, that's very true. Yeah. Lindsay, when you're working with startups or, you know, young companies that you're investing in, what are the friction points that you've experienced? 
on what aspects do you as the VC disagree with the decisions or the way the startups operate? Do you have any points of disagreement? Are there any recurring aspects on which you disagree with companies as a VC? Before you actually make the investment, then you want to kind of make sure that most of those aspects of friction are already figured out or not really existent. But it also depends on like what stage you're looking at these space startups. We invest in more kind of seed series A. So by then, most of these issues should have been flushed out. But probably the one thing that is recurring is we would always like the startups to go faster. And we're always like, when's your launch? When's your next test? Was it successful? So those are the main points of friction, I guess, if there is any. But it's always, we want them to move faster because we're worried about maybe competition catching up or something like that. I think it's also very important for startups to have some kind of reality check either either with the customer breathing down their neck or the VC, like someone has to, otherwise it'll, it's just gonna, a lot of times I think startups just turn into these research projects, yeah. especially if they spin out of universities, right? So they're still- Yeah, in- exactly. VCs are not investing in research projects. So that is another thing is like, we see a lot of companies spinning out of universities and a lot of the time there's maybe multiple companies spinning out using essentially the same technology from the same university. So those kind of things are not what we would be looking to invest in. Understand totally as an engineer, you are stuck in a forever loop of trying to improve to incremental changes to your product. There's a lot of kicks you get out of making these infinitesimal changes forever. If you do accept VC money, you can expect your VCs to be asking you constantly, why aren't you going faster? When when are you going to actually launch? What are your results? How can we help you move faster or pick up more customers? Do you find any difference in dealing with young founders versus experienced ones? You know, young as in fresh out of college versus someone who's been in the industry or not not necessarily space space industry, but in some industry, someone who's worked in some industry for 10 or 15 years and then started a company. Yes, we kind of look for kind of a sweet spot in between because if they're right out of university, then I think they have a lot to learn, especially on the business and customer route, um, and can be super optimistic, which is good, but reality hasn't yet set in, I think, versus if they've been in the industry for decades. I mean, it really depends on that side of things, because sometimes they're just maybe too comfortable in where they are and think that they are the best and nobody else can beat them. But they have to realize that there's these 
young young professionals like right on their coattails chasing them down so they they need to also get out of their comfort zone and move faster the sweet spot is right in between or if you have i think ideally you'd want to have a matchup of the older professionals with the younger professionals so that they both can work together and they each have their own strong points um so if they can that would be ideal to work together for a startup cuz you need the you need the decades of experience to really understand what you're up against and like figure out how to get through all the sort of regulations and policies and how to navigate it all and then having the young professionals they're like really hungry to have change and build something new so ideally you'd have a mixture of these two yeah that's a very interesting point because um, i think the fact that one young professional has teamed up with an experienced one and started a company i think that's that's already one litmus test passed right because they've already overcome any generational gap between them and they've smoothened it out yeah i mean there's always something to learn from each other a vc fund on one end it has the companies that it's investing in on the other hand there's also lps and are there any any players any other players that you interface with or work with oh yeah we i mean we interface with and work with like everybody i mean we work with other venture funds who are interested in space like we will talk about portfolio companies together or like potential investments we help each other with due diligence if like one fund has is stronger on one aspect than we are versus were versus we could be well so generally because we are based focused for other funds who are talking to our portfolio companies they will want to come and talk to us about space so they like to get our perspective as to why we think that this space company is worth investing in like what the potential is so we have a lot of those conversations and then we have uh we work with like tech stars i'm a mentor for their space accelerator program um and then there's also like isa they have their investor forum now which i also participate in uh so i mean we're all pretty collaborative and that's the other thing is if you're talking to one space vc just assume that they're also talking to us or like we're all talking to each other so oh wow so uh, all the space vc funds are super close knit so word spreads fast yeah yeah we all collaborate for the most part so you could be aware of that <laughs> because there aren't that many of us and you know it's better to be collaborative 
So, Lindsay, you've mentioned that there's a variety of space professionals with a lot of experience working uh, as your colleagues working at Starbridge. So to join a space VC fund or a company like Starbridge, what is the skill set needed? There's no set answer because everybody's looking for something different. But I think I'm going to be repetitive again, but it's your network, at least for me, because by the time I decided I wanted to join a venture fund investing in space, I basically knew and had a good relationship with almost every space startup CEO out there at the time. So I I already knew what every company was working on and already had a mindset as to like why I would invest versus not invest and like why this specific technology I thought would be important for the future. So you have to have a really strong network. You have to have opinions or like a mindset, which means that you need to also generally know what the technology is. You don't have to be a deep expert in it because there's just way too much to be an expert in all of the space technologies, but you should just generally have an understanding as to what the tech is and why it's important. And then if needed, then you can go and do a deep dive on it. And, you know, your network, if if there is a technology that you come across and you don't know too much about it, then know exactly which person within your network you can just call up and ask them all the questions that you want about this technology just to get a better understanding of it. Okay, so somebody with a big picture in mind, with the mindset of the big picture. Yeah, and then if you really want to get into VC, then you need to start, obviously you need to start digging into VC and just learning everything that you can about it. So you need to really build up your network on both sides, on the space side and in the general venture capital world, and just read everything that you can. (laughs) Read and have these sort of conversations. So when running a space VC fund, do you find any challenges specifically because you're focusing on space versus compared to any other deep tech? So for example, when you're roping in the limited partners or in terms of your holding periods or exit strategies, is space very different from other deep tech for you? I don't think it's that different from deep tech if you're talking about are you talking about like AR, VR, VTOL? Yeah. I think the only real difference is base tech is maybe a few steps behind those types of technologies. So now you're seeing like AR, VR, VTOL, like getting their exits and like SPACs. But space is also now having a number of exits through SPACs, which... For the overall industry, it's hopeful too. It's good to see that space is getting its time in the spotlight 
where there's a lot more attention on it. So we're like cautiously optimistic about the future of space and SPACs. Lindsay, so if any young space professionals or space enthusiasts or students want to reach out to you, what's the best way? So I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn or send me an email at lindsay at starbridgevc.com. Or probably the best way to get in touch with me is through an introduction through yourself or any other close space friends. Thank you very much, Lindsay. You've given very interesting insights into this arcane world, I would say, of the whole space venture capital funding. I'm sure I should really do um, another episode with you on finer points. So perhaps I'll go back, read myself up, get educated a little bit on how the VC universe works, and then we can come back and we can do a more in-depth episode. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking your time today. You're welcome. It's been fun.